Hello, I'm Sarah Brown, and in this episode I have the pleasure of chatting once more with garden designer and writer Jack Wallington. We talk about his latest book, A Greener Life. Hailed by the Times newspaper as Gardening Book of the Year, it covers the best environmentally friendly skills, tools and techniques for looking after a garden. Jack and I also discuss that all-important topic of the relationship of nature and wildlife for the gardener, and how you can blur those lines between the nature you see beyond your plot and what you have within it. I hold my hands up that we do get a little philosophical at some points, because let's face it, talking about gardening is also talking about big questions of creating life and our relationship with the natural world. But with Jack, there's always a giggle, and I hope you enjoy his wealth of sound, practical advice as well. I love this book, Jack. It's such a successful blend of really helpful gardening advice plus thoughts and suggestions on how to support the desire to go greener in the broadest sense. Well, thank, thank you, Sarah. That means, that means a lot. In, in, in some ways, it's a very practical book, but it's also a really personal one to me. So that's, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. Yes, I think that's rather lovely. There is quite a lot of personal in it, but that doesn't get in the way of the very practical advice and also the very sensible view that you have towards wildlife and how to bring wildlife into your growing area. And I know that you distinguish between wildlife in its natural habitat, whether that's woods, parks, meadows, and the wildlife in the garden. Yes, that's that's it. I really wanted to write this book because um, I just felt that there was this divide between wildlife gardening and designed beautiful gardens. What I wanted to do was show people that actually you can have it all in one garden. So I guess when I first started gardening, I was doing lots of stuff in our garden, but also going out to see wildflowers in the wild. And I just noticed the same bulbs and shoots, the same wildlife out in the countryside or in a park as was in our garden. And it, it was, the garden was much more ornamental. And it just struck me that with the right choice of plants and building the right habitats to match the wild, you could make that you could make it a really good habitat and home for wildlife. But with the colours and the shapes and leaf textures and things that we perhaps uh, respond to better. So I was starting to build a, a garden which combined it all into one. And that's something I've taken into uh, other people's gardens and designs as well, which I've explained in, in the book A Greener Life. You also mention the fact that the bee doesn't recognise a garden fence. You know, there are no boundaries where wildlife is concerned. There are for us humans, but not for the bees and the birds and the butterflies. <laughs> no, I find um, wildlife doesn't give two hoots about the boundaries that we put up. Uh, kind of ignored by birds. They might use it to perch on, for instance, but they'll, they'll fly between gardens as one. Each garden is a, a piece of a puzzle in the much, as a much bigger habitat. And I think that's that was quite interesting. It's almost if everybody were to start thinking a little bit more about wildlife in their garden, then together all of these different pieces join together into a really, really friendly, useful place for a wildlife to live. Jack, we can cover some of your practical tips in the book later on, because I know that the listeners will be really interested to hear them. But let's go on discussing the importance of a planet friendly garden, as you call it. I think I'm getting the feeling from what you've written in the book about soil health and compost making and saving seeds. I get the feeling you're a little bit wary of garden centre buying. Yes, I would be wary because I think it encourages a disconnect with nature because it can be so commercial. I love lots of independent nurseries that I love. They'll give you lots of advice and it's not so much sell, 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 but for loads of products and loads of things like pesticides because we do not need them. 
I've gardened now for well over five years without any pesticide at all. Um, and even prior to then, I was using only the odd bit of organic slug pellets, or even now that I don't use anymore, um, and really rely on the ecosystem and nature to balance everything out. So I guess I am quite wary of the commercial nature of, of some garden centres and selling us stuff that we don't need. It removes us from the joy of gardening. So even buying large plants, ready flowering, pump full of fertilisers to look their best, which then a few months later stop flowering probably aren't always right for the conditions that we plant them in. Whereas actually, if you buy a smaller plant and watch it grow over a year or two, not only do you get the joy of watching something that you've planted and looked after grow into something wonderful and save money, you also have a plant that's going to be more, perhaps perhaps more robust and, and established by the end of it. And you could actually take that even further, Jack, in as much as if in a greener life, you would be perhaps taking cuttings from your own plants or friends would be offering them from their plants or collecting seeds from your plants. I mean, it, it, you do mention this in the book. So it, there is less consumption and more about being self-sufficient and creating your own space. Absolutely. And it comes back to a greener life is so many things, really. It's um, it's being good for wildlife, good for you, but also, this, as you mentioned, that sustainability is so important to me. We live in a climate crisis where using plastic and transporting things is a major problem. And gardening really should be the shining lights of all areas of life for being green. But it isn't. It's actually one of the worst. And not only that, but it it takes us away from the joy of what makes gardening so good anyway. Growing things from seed, as you say, taking cuttings, growing plants on from small bare roots or cuttings or seedlings. The activity and being part of the process is I, I believe a real joy and it's and it's also easy <laughs> it's actually rather than going and spending a, a couple of hundred pounds down a, a garden center and getting a load of plants in pots wait a year take cuttings from the rosemary or lavender that you've already got and have 20 plants for absolutely nothing um but a tiny bit of time and fun that's so true you have an interesting sentence that intrigued me when i first read it it says a gardener doesn't need a garden can you explain that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think um, I can already feel some people out there who don't have a garden glaring at me, but um, I've, I've been in their position, um, so I promise I know how it feels. And what, what I mean by it is a couple of things. First of all, I, I like going out into countryside or walking around parks, and um, and I'll be looking down, head down, staring at what's growing in road verges and things. And I, I get a lot of enjoyment about seeing through the year what grows, so things like uh, wild daffodils or bluebells and uh, wild garlic and these other bulbs shooting in spring through to tree blossom from elderflowers or wild crab apples. So in seeing what wildlife uses those, which insects go to them, which birds use them, it's kind of all of this really lively activity. And I get the same enjoyment in the garden. <laughs> um, so I think you can get that kind of enjoyment anywhere. I know it's not the same as getting your hands dirty and planting stuff, but um, the other side to that is I've lived in a rented property with no garden. Uh, so even if you have no garden, you can use pots or window boxes and you can grow plants inside, um, lots of plants inside. We had a, we have a jungle <laughs> in our house and it's amazing how much growing space you can get, uh, even if you don't have a garden. So I kind of, I mean, it as a positive message to people that don't despair because I've, I've been there and actually, but there are ways if you haven't got that growing space, you can grow stuff. And it might be that you you reach out to local community gardens or, um, as I did, I, I did exactly that, desperately trying to find somewhere to grow vegetables. 
started in a tiny community garden, raised bed, and then ended up with my own allotment as well. So there are opportunities out there. Um, so I guess it's those two things. It's that thinking about lack of space, which I know a lot of people have, but also try and get out and see the wider world as your garden as well, because that's what it is. The way I read that sentence, a gardener doesn't need a garden, I read it as all you need is is the attitude to appreciate things that are growing. And it doesn't matter if it's not in your garden or it's not on your balcony. It can be anywhere else. But the point is, it's your way of thinking and getting through life is enjoying the natural world and the natural world supporting you as much as you support it. Yeah, you're so right with that. And that's one of the book's key messages that and I wanted to get that across because it took me a while to figure that out. Because you have to, I think it helps once you start to learn, see and spot and recognize different plant species or insect species. By going out and looking and recognizing them, you start to tap into this wider world and getting benefit from that. So you start to look forward to spring blossoms or autumn colors and leaves and um, even enjoying looking at what, what shoots are starting to swell on shrubs and trees in the middle of winter. And there's so much enjoyment and connection to be had from that. And that, that really helped me just through life um, to give me a kind of an anchor, um, something to look forward to, something to go out and look at. I mean, we, we have a garden. I'm very lucky. To, I feel like lucky to have one, but I actually spend more time out of it just walking around looking at mosses and <laughs> looking at lichens and weeds and pavements and things like that and it's I find it so fun treating it all as the same thing really. Without getting too philosophical isn't it also something about ownership that we tend to think that we own our gardens and therefore put they see it as a possession of ours and in fact what you're saying is that you you don't own nature you just you respond to nature yeah absolutely I love that responding to nature I think that is it and yeah so I I personally totally agree that we I feel like I I feel like I don't own any land (laughs) Uh, we're actually just it's my job to look after it for the future and I'll enjoy it while I'm here in a way it's almost that that looking after something is what I respond to more so it's really so it might be planting a seed and watching it grow and watering it and feeding it and it turns into a flower or a vegetable which is really rewarding and our care and nurture has helped that to happen but actually you can still get that same sense of enjoyment just by going out into the the world and finding a seedling anywhere and watching it grow and you might just brush away a leaf from it that's shading it a bit or you might see some one plant just push that up the way slightly so it has a bit more light and then you can come back to it in a few months and see how it's grown and also and... witnessing that seed growing entirely on its own without any human help is is just so life affirming and it makes it so miraculous, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's it's amazing and it never no matter how many years I've grown something or seen anything growing from seed, it never stops amazing me. I'm saying you can help it out, but most of the time plants just want to grow and they will grow without any help from us whatsoever. <laughs> um, and in garden, we can be guilty of over caring for them and over mollycoddling them and primping and pruning them. And actually they'll be quite happy growing alongside each other in a bit of a hustle and bustle that we see out in the wild. And I think that kind of free spirit of the wild and na- of nature, that's why I actually like to try and bring that into the garden as well. So that's kind of a bit of what the book's about is to try and allow that to happen. Because I think sometimes we can over manicure the gardens to, and that can take away some of that magic and that amazement that we get from that kind of random or serendipitous surprise and 
the unexpected side of nature is what brings so much joy, I think. Mm, yes, the natural response. Jack, you've yeah. alluded to the help that gardening has given you for your own state of mind. In fact, in the book, you actually say how it changed you as a as a person. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes. So I remember as a child, I grew, as, as so many children do, I grew from seed, and I re- but I really enjoyed that. But then I, life went on at university and then had a job afterwards and a career. And gardening really took a back seat. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, that I'll come back to that when I retire. But then in my 30s, I just, I think I just started to feel the pressure of life a bit more, um, as everybody does, just from things like mortgages and pressure from work and everything. I think everyone, everyone has that at some point in their lives. And we were very lucky to be able to buy the small flat that we lived, that we were renting, which came with a small garden. I'd planted something there. And it seen those bulbs and plants grow brought back all of this happiness and joy and it kind of I started looking forward to what what was going to happen I wanted to plant more um I guess it provided a gave me a support in a way but what it did was really focus my mind which distracted from all of the things that these things building up negative things building up in my head suddenly seemed much less important because what I was doing in the when I was planting plants like hellebores and I saw a bee land on the flower instantly I saw that I was doing something good and what if I planted more stuff without in without help support more wildlife um, and suddenly I was doing something that felt in a small way important um, and definitely much more important than the things that were worrying me to do with bills and work. <laughs> Those issues didn't go away, but they just drifted into the background a little bit as I started to have fun playing around with the garden and exploring nature outside of it too. You're making the point very effectively that perhaps the strongest connections we make are through nurture and through care, aren't they? And while we obsess about our daily life and the mundane details and pressures of it, but once you start to care for something beyond yourself, and that's what a gardener does, then, as you say, it puts it back into balance again, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does. There's a psychological element to it where we know from our human interactions that the people we care for and do things for, we feel a stronger attachment and connections to. And that can work worse, vice versa. But the more we look after something, the more we feel not just invested in it, but we're, there's something that is reassuring about that. I believe that applies to gardening and nature as well, um, which is why I think we find it so rewarding to see a seedling grow, to live and flourish. And I think we all look forward to seeing a favourite plant coming back the next year. And if you have multiple favourite plants, then you're going to look forward to seeing all of them. And you know that over the years, you've really cared for them or you might have seen them grow from a seed um, and or you might have divided a, a perennial and spread it around to increase the amount of one colour in the garden. Seeing that happen in front of you and knowing that you've played a part in it. So I think there's just something very rewarding in that. And that, that in a way, just helps distract from everything else. Even if you're not a gardener and they, you happen to be listening to this, I'd just give it a go and try and grow some things because I think you'll find that you will get some enjoyment out of it and you might that might turn into something much more powerful as time goes on. So true. It's very interesting that you should say that, Jack, because I know from the work that Garden Organic has done with people who are dependent on drugs and alcohol, um, to introduce them to gardening and to introduce them, therefore, to the idea that you are involved with natural rhythms of life, but also a sense of delayed gratification, not the instant fix that your drug or your drink is going to give you, but the fact that if you sow some seeds, you're going to have to wait and trust that they're going to appear. And then when they do, two weeks later or whatever, the thrill is the biggest rush you can get. Yes, I think that's um, that's really interesting. I think there's, there are multiple things going on when we grow things. So first of all, there's that, as you say, it 
introduces you to a calendar that we aren't in control of. Uh, and we have to follow that natural calendar. So it's, it's nice being linked in and connected to that, um, whereas, whereas so much of life takes us away from it. Uh, but also there's that delayed gratification and joy from seeing something grow. It's like a surprise, which just continues, as particularly with, 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 some, with vegetables where you might get it germinating and then you see the flowers and then eventually you get the fruit or the vegetable growing from it. So then you get a direct physical thing where you can, you can eat what you've grown, which is rewarding. But I think there's also that hands-on element. Yes, so true. You're, when you're gardening, you're doing something. It's, it's creative. It, you, can, you can't take your mind off it. So your, your mind goes on to the task at hand, whether it's weeding or sowing or watering, whatever. You have to stop thinking about what you were thinking about before because you, if you don't, you can't do the task in hand. So yeah, I think there's multiple things going on that could help help people in lots of different ways, I think. That's very good. Let's get practical. Tell us some of the things that we can all do to bring nature into our growing space, because that's really what this book is all about. Yes, I think the first few things are quite quite simple, actually. So number one is not to use pesticides and and other chemicals. But pesticides, number one, because if we're killing insects, that's obviously not going to help wildlife. Mm -hmm. Uh, It goes beyond that, I suppose, because accepting that insects like aphids, uh, you might see aphids on your plants, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because aphids are food for ladybirds and hoverflies, which will, if you have those, they'll keep the aphids under control. And if you have aphids and hoverflies, they tend to be food for small birds like like blue tits and blackbirds and robins and so on. So there's this whole chain. If you take away the aphid just with a quick spray, you're taking away that whole chain. And so we lose all the predators that will control the aphids in the first place. So being organic um, is the obvious simple step, which actually over time will make gardening much easier. That's what I found. I know when I first went fully organic, it was nerve wracking because you have to have it's almost like a, a test of faith that the predators will come along, but it might take a year or two for the ecosystem, your garden, to rebalance that it does. And there's other things you can do, such as a really one of the top things I'd recommend everyone do is get into compost, which if you haven't done it before, may sound like the most boring thing to get stuck into, but comp- making your own compost is great because you're you're being sustainable by reusing pl- waste plant material in your garden and turning that into a usable product compost, which feeds the growth of other plants. Um, but beyond that, I love them because a compost heap, I think, is so the number one bug hotel. So much wildlife will live in a compost heap. Going through our compost heap, I've seen a queen wasp in there hiding out over winter. Uh, things like worms and millipedes and centipedes, wood lice, uh, all sorts of things. In, and so it's a really, that's a wonderful thing. You get something for you, something for wildlife. But that's what one of the key messages I want to get out there is thinking beyond an individual plant to habitats, which I think will help people is to really think of garden spaces as habitats. So by habitats, you mean somewhere that um, an insect or a bird, a butterfly or whatever can live, can shelter, can feed and can breed. Is that right? Yes, that's it. Um, Yes. So it's a different kind of place within a garden or out in the wild where different insects or birds might want to live. Um, so a garden is usually very much like a woodland edge where you have an open space in the middle that we use, um, like a lawn or a patio, surrounded by shrubs or trees. It's very much like a, a clearing uh, in a woodland edge, which is used by lots of different wildlife, like small birds and things. Um, but within that, you've got different grades from the the grassy lawn area is one habitat, through to herbaceous borders, which have larger perennials, through to the, the shrubs, which are large woody plants to really tall trees and each of those is a different habitat which kind of blend into one another 
but trying to think about these different areas of the garden can really help rather than going to a garden center and buying a lavender planting it somewhere if you think about the habitat and what make, makes the habitat special that will help you choose the right plants for that area and also you mentioned about not just choosing the one plant that you love, but thinking about how does this contribute to the whole creation within your garden in terms of natural habitats? Because I really thought it was funny. Your first words of advice to the reader was, don't just choose familiar plants. (laughs) There was a little (laughs) bit of a sort of schoolmaster in there. I could hear you shaking your finger. But actually, isn't this a little scary for the first time grower? Because if you're new to growing, you think, well, I've always liked lavender. Can't I have it, please? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yes. I should probably explain this. So I'm, I'm a landscape designer in my as my my full time job, and a greener life is constructed around the questions that I receive as a gardener and designer, um, as well as my wider work as a writer. So it's all based on questions that I receive all the time. I don't want to take this in the wrong way because I mean it really helpfully, and I love all of these plants. My heart sinks a little bit when people say to me, "We must have lavender, roses, or an acer." which are all lovely plants. I actually use them a lot in designs, but there are hundreds of thousands of alternative options which may be better suited to each person's garden. So um, I almost think it's coming back to right plant, right place, and taking the place element and thinking, actually, we're thinking about what is the habitats and different growing conditions that we have in our garden. So thinking about the conditions, is it really sunny? Is it shady? What's the soil like? And then going a step further and thinking, so actually, is it, is it going to be a really open garden with lots of low plants? Or is it going to be that woodland edge or shrubbery area? Uh, I, I suppose I'm, I'm making it hard, I'm making it sound harder for um, anyone new to gardens by going into this detail now. But I suppose what I mean is you will have more success by spending a bit of time just researching your garden and thinking about it and then researching the best plants for that rather than going to a garden centre and taking whatever is off the shelf that looks really nice at the time. Because by doing that, you're more likely to set yourself up for failure by choosing the wrong plant uh, for, the, for the conditions, which I hope it makes sense. I absolutely agree with you. And it is all about, as you say, the greener life in as much as if you go down the, the, the overconsumption route and you buy all these plants and they die, then you go and buy them again. I mean, that is that is not sustainable. The sustainable route, as you say, is to assess your growing area and what's going to work in it and what's going to bring nature into it. And those are the two key things. I mean, much as we love roses, Jack, do they bring a lot of wildlife into the garden? Probably not. <laughs> no, they bring a lot of aphids into the garden. And I know that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit down on <laughs> I know roses are really nice, but actually, I have to admit, I've got a thing against really ornamental, overbred roses because they're not a good for wildlife, whereas the, the really the single flowered more open natural wild roses are brilliant for wildlife and then you and the rose hips are eaten by birds in the new autumn and winter depends on the rose yeah that's so true that's so true jack can we unpack this word ecosystems it's very much a buzzword uh, along with biodiversity and all these other words that are circulating in the greener life and in climate challenge that we have at the moment what do you understand by the word ecosystem Ah, this is a good question because this ecosystem for me is what it is all about. This is the most fun bit of gardening. <laughs> uh, and it, what it means to me is, is the connections between all living things and how they get on with each other. 
So an ecosystem is everything alive in a certain area, I suppose. And that might be around your garden or it could be in a, uh, a valley or, or within a few miles or it could be a really small corner of, of a garden which contain a, a certain ecosystem. But it's basically just the, the interactions between plants and insects and birds and animals and bacteria and fungi and all of these things and how they're all connected and how they all interact. Mm. Um, and you can see how that works by that, that the example I gave earlier of aphids on plants and then ladybird larvae or ladybirds coming on and eat, eating them. You've got the plant, the aphid and the ladybird all powered by the sun powering the plants and the things in the soil. If these things are all thriving, they all help one another. And I guess it's that one, one part of it is beneath the soil. There's more life in the soil than there is above. I'm so glad you mentioned the soil because to me, the more I garden, the more I recognise that actually the soil and its own little ecosystem is absolutely the pumping heart of the garden. There's no doubt about it. And it is amazing what goes on in the soil if you saw it under a microscope. And it's to do with microbes that feed bacteria, which they interact with the plant roots, which allow it to take up the nutrients. It's complex. It's very complex. And I haven't got my head around it, but it is the most wonderful ecosystem. It, it is. Even certain things like the way most plants on planet Earth are connected to the mycelium of fungi, which often link the plants together. So we, another buzz term is the, the wood wired web, uh, which is, is are those connections between fungi and plants. Although science, some scientists have been talking about it for a few decades, it's still really new and we don't really understand everything about it. There's, there's a lot to learn there, but we do know there are interactions, good and bad, plant to plant through fungi connections. Mm, I love the fact that we talk about flora, fauna and fungi. Yes, <laughs> the, the three Fs. It's, um, yes. Uh, yes, I think that's, um, but yeah, soil is, is, is fascinating. And uh, I talk a lot about leaving leaves in gardens. So rather than removing leaves, um, I'll brush them off lawns and, and from paths so they don't get slippery and to let light into the lawn. But I'll just brush them into the flower beds. <laughs> and then usually by spring, they're gone anyway, because the worms and the bacteria and everything else in the soil have eaten it and that, that's turned into hummus which is in the soil which is then absorbed by plants and fungi to help plant growth. I'm often asked do you need a large growing area to create a healthy ecosystem and actually I, I think you'd agree you don't and I think that it's more about diversity than scale. Yeah absolutely and in, in the, the garden, London garden in discussed in the book it's um it's tiny five meters by six meters or so so we had a tiny pond that was in a, in a metal container um 60 by 60 centimeters and I had um oxygenating plants a miniature water lily and a couple of other plants and I was amazed absolutely amazed at how much wildlife got in there there was a dragonfly one year we had um pond skaters and water boatmen but they managed to find it in the middle of this tiny little pond with another pond nearby. Birds were drinking out of it. In fact, it was so amazing. It was quite sad. And one day I came out into the garden and sadly one of the blackbirds had been taken by a, a sparrowhawk. Wow. And so if we could get in this tiny little space, we had a bird of prey. So that's the ecosystem, really, these chains of things. But yeah, you're right. Even just one single plant, so something like an Astrantia, will attract hoverflies, bees, wasps, and suddenly just with that one plant in a pot somewhere or window box, that is the start of an ecosystem or a part of a wider one around your garden or your home. Uh, so, yeah, you don't need a big space. You just need that diversity. So perhaps one plant that flowers or does something in each season um, would be a good start because that's to support different insects at different times. 
Yeah. Yes, that's very good thinking. Another thing, let's get back to the book again, Jack, because one of the things I love is the chapters where you take us beyond the garden. And in fact, there's a whole section called The World is Your Garden. And this is where you talk about exploring wildernesses. And again, you you don't have to go into a vast forest. It can be in towns and cities. Yes. And funny enough, this chapter was actually, when I was writing the book, it actually started as the the beginning of the book and has ended up at the back. (laughs) But that hopefully explains to people the ethos that runs through the book to get out of your garden, just walk around. And, uh, and that could be in a city. I perhaps spend a lot of my time just in waste grounds in, in London or parks and that kind of bits that people don't go into where you could find more wildflowers. It's a bit more overgrown. Go into woods and just go out at different times of the year to the same spot and see how it changes. Because you might see something really cool like I really got into fungi, more and more I get into fungi because you go out in the autumn when most of the plants have started to fade back or go become dormant in the ground. But that's when fungi come out. And, and if you look really closely at them, they've got really interesting patterns. I think it's where cameras and phone photos have actually really come into their own because you can take photos and look more closely. But yeah, even just going out and seeing what birds are around, really exciting. But it also feeds back into your garden. So I know for our garden, it's quite often when I'm out and about the plants that I see along walls or in, in cracks in the pavement, sometimes they're quite beautiful and colourful. Mm. And I'll just make a mental note of them, like a, a foxglove. And I'll go back when it's set seed, collect some seed and bring it into our garden. That's growing locally and will do well. And I really like it. So why not? I couldn't agree with you more. It's this whole connection. And that's what the book is about. This whole connection between you and nature and how you bring it into your own little growing space and into your life. I have to say, Jack, although I'm surrounded by gardening books and I have been all my life, I've actually kept this book by my bed for some time. And as I dip into it, I often find myself discovering little nuggets of wisdom or gardening tips. I mean, there's we've talked a lot about the theories and, and the philosophy behind going greener, but actually it's a very practical book as well. And choosing the right plants, the right places, what tools you need, uh, how to propagate your own plants. You've even got me thinking about climbing trees, Jack. That's something I haven't done <laughs> since childhood. <laughs> I hope you climb a tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Jack, for joining me and our listeners. It's been such a delight. It really has. Thank you. Thank, thank you for reading it. Thank you for chatting about it. It's been really fun. Thank you, Sarah. And for anyone who wants a copy, you can order it from Jack's website, jackwallington.com, or from your local independent bookseller. Thanks again, Jack. Bye.